WNYC Studios is supported by Earth Justice. As a national legal nonprofit, Earth Justice has more than 200 full time lawyers who fight for a healthy environment. They're challenging utilities to lower your power bill and fight climate change by helping communities achieve clean, affordable energy for all. From stopping new gas plants to helping advance the growth of rooftop solar, Earth Justice is accelerating the clean energy transition so we can all breathe easy. Visit earthjustice.org slash power to learn more. That's earthjustice.org slash power. National Outlet Shopping Day is back. Join us June 8th and 9th at Simon Premium Outlets nationwide. Score thousands of can't-miss deals from brands you love all weekend long. They've got up to 65% off every day. And the National Outlet Shopping Day deals are even better. Visit premiumoutlets.com slash NOSD to find a premium outlet near you. That's premiumoutlets.com slash NOSD. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Wednesday, January 31st. With us now, Joshua Green, national correspondent for Bloomberg Businessweek, with his new book called The Rebels, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the Struggle for American Politics. Of course, we talk about these politicians a lot because of how prominent they are, and they've all been on the show. But what's especially interesting about this book coming from Joshua Green is that some of you may remember he wrote the bestseller from a few years ago called Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the Presidency. So as Joni Mitchell might sing at the Grammys this weekend, he's looked at American populism from both sides now. So let's talk to Joshua Green, author now of The Rebels, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the Struggle for American Politics. Joshua, thanks for coming on. Welcome to WNYC Today. Thanks so much for having me back. Can we start right in with the connection between the two books on these right-wing and left-wing populist figures? Maybe define the word populism the way you use it and say why the same word applies to those camps with such different worldviews. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up this comparison because the two books weren't really written this way, but they they really are sort of a, you could think of them as a two-volume series. Um, So so Devil's Bargain I wrote in 2016, 2017. Uh, I was I was uh, embedded at the time with with Steve Bannon and Donald Trump, you know. And what I noticed was just this brand of backlash uh, politics to the effects of the financial crisis, to the rise of immigration, and that sort of thing. So that was that was the the, the theme of the last book that, that carried Trump to the White House. Um, I come out of the political world of the left, so I've already I've always been interested in left wing populism in particular. Uh, so this book, uh, as you as you said in the intro, is about Warren, Bernie, AOC, and the rise of left-wing populism since the 2008 financial crisis, um, the the sea change we've seen in the Democratic Party since then, and ultimately how it took a moderate Democratic president and Joe Biden um, to to begin, well, first of all, to thwart Trump's right-wing populism, but also to begin putting big parts of that left agenda into place. Right. But left-wing populism 
is, tell me if you agree with this rough characterization, traditionally about, say, organizing workers and other large mm-hmm. groups of grassroots citizens against an economic overclass who keep them down. Right-wing populist movements are traditionally about suspicion of the other, immigrants, African-Americans, sexual minorities, and much more open to authoritarianism, at least domestically. Or, or wouldn't you frame it like that? No, I would. I would say there are areas of overlap, though, especially on economics. Uh, People forget this now, but Trump, when he first ran in 2016, spent as much time talking about uh, the Wall Street banks and how they were ripping off workers as he did immigrants and Muslims. That stuff all fell away once he became president. Um, But I I, I think in general, yeah, that that right-wing populism tends to be more culturally inflected, whereas the left-wing populism that I write about in The Rebels really is more focused on economics. And I would even broaden out the list of things you mentioned um, to, you know, my my book is bookended by two financial crises, the 08 one, uh, but also the the crash that followed the COVID pandemic. And so Mm -hmm. I would also fold in things like the big middle-class focused stimulus that we got Uh, both from Donald Trump when he was still president, but also from Joe Biden. And then things like small business loans, student debt relief, eviction freezes, uh, basically action by the government on behalf of workers in the middle class. And I'm going to play a clip of AOC in a minute from just this past Sunday on Meet the Press that I think exemplifies um, what you were just saying. But talk a little bit more about the history first, because I think I hear you saying the 2008 era financial crisis unleashed a new wave of right wing populism and a new wave of left wing populism, sort of the same problems that inspired activists to very different solutions. That's right. So I've been a reporter in Washington for about 25 years, a political reporter. And to my mind, the 2008 financial crisis was the great disruption in American politics in my adult lifetime. Uh, In the aftermath of that, it just changed the course of politics. Uh, You know, on the right, we saw an immediate backlash with the rise of the Tea Party movement and eventually places like Breitbart News, Steve Bannon and Donald Trump. Uh, But there was also a reaction on the left, and that's really the subject of of my new book and that history, um, which gave rise to a brand, in particular of economic populism, uh, from Warren, Bernie, and AOC that had existed in the past in America in the 1940s and 50s, but had really become dormant in the 60s, 70s, and 80s as liberalism changed its focus to things like civil rights, women's rights, the environment. Uh, In the early 2000s, a lot of energy was focused on the Iraq war and foreign policy. Uh, But the old brand of economic populism really came roaring back in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis uh, and gave rise to this new strain uh, of democratic politicians. And I sort of tell this history through the, the successive stories of Warren, Bernie, and AOC, and how that's changed the Democratic Party and Joe Biden's presidency. Do you think my memory would be right if I said the populist responses against the banking bailouts of post-2008 were different in that Republicans objected to it because they don't like government spending, and they thought a lot more government spending to bail out the banks, you know, might result in higher taxes. Um, The left-wing populists didn't like it because only the banks got bailed out. And there were all these homeowners uh, left to be foreclosed, and they weren't bailed out. 
I think at a kind of macro level, that's correct. Um, but it's worth remembering, you know, both of these crises started under Republican presidents. George Bush, George George W. Bush, younger Bush, was president when the 08 financial crisis hit. Uh, and let me tell you, uh, because I was covering Congress at the time, uh, Republicans in Congress were fine with, with spending government money to bail out the banks. Uh, Mitch McConnell said at the time that passing TARP, Troubled Asset Relief Program, which was the big Wall Street bailout, uh, was his proudest accomplishment as a senator. Um, and it was only after a Democratic president got elected in Barack uh, Obama that, that he changed yeah. his tune. Uh, but I think broadly speaking, um, what happened in the wake of the crisis was was a kind of mass dissatisfaction with the narrowness of the recovery, both among Republican and Democratic voters. And you can see that reflected in a lot of poll numbers at the time. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of the crisis, Gallup always asks people historically, a very useful question, what's the biggest problem the country is facing? And in 09 and 10, it was the banks. Uh, and then it became, a few years later, it became the government. Uh, and then the backlash broadened even further until the point that it became you know, establishment figures and institutions in general. And that was about 2013, 2014, which was right before uh, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders came on the scene and became important national figures. So I do think that there's a, a partisan component um, to the various strains of populism, the way that they manifested themselves. Um, but but in both of those directions, I think they upset Democratic and Republican politics, sort of created an earthquake that we're still feeling aftershocks from today. My guest is Joshua Green, national correspondent for Bloomberg Businessweek with his new book called The Rebels, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and The Struggle for American Politics. And he had also written a few years ago, Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the Storming of the American Presidency. And one of the main premises of the book is that this wing of the Democratic Party has had a lot of influence on the Biden presidency, that he has governed more as a progressive than the earlier phases of his career in politics might have suggested he would. So here's a clip of AOC on NBC's Meet the Press just this past Sunday, kind of saying Biden's been pretty good, but she wants him to go further. I think we need to be talking more about health care. Of course, me as a progressive, I want to see uh, the age of Medicare drop, whether it's to 50, as the president has discussed earlier, or to zero, as is my preference, uh, to extend uh, Medicare to all people in the United States of America. Uh, but I believe that we can be doing more. We can talk even more about the fact that public uh, colleges and universities should be tuition-free or reduced. The president has advanced uh, student loan forgiveness just this yeah. month for people who have taken out save loans uh, under $12,000. They will see their loans wiped out. But I do believe that advancing that affirmative uh, vision is going to be very, very important uh, as, as well as really laying out and showing between now and November through our governing decisions, mm. our governing decisions, when we have that power in the White House, what we are willing to do with it. AOC on NBC, MTP, Meet the Press, on <laughs> Sunday. Does that clip exemplify the relationship between Biden and the progressive wing today? Well, I think what it exemplifies is the the pressure that this that this newly emergent progressive wing has put on the mainstream of the Democratic Party and Joe Biden in particular, and and done so. I, I want to say, and I argue with, in, in the book, with a great deal of success, more I think than, than progressives tend to realize. 
Um, when, when I first got to Washington in 2000, Biden was uh, jokingly known as the senator from corporate America and, and one of Wall Street's best friends because he represented Delaware, which is home to so many corporations. Um, or, you know, early in the book, I, I sort of write the narrative of, of how he emerged, and he was really viewed as, as a villainous figure. Um, there was a famous showdown that Biden had with Elizabeth Warren in 2005 over bankruptcy bill. Warren was then a, a, an important Harvard law professor. Uh, but you can see uh, as president that Biden has really embraced the brand of economic populism that that my three characters believe in. Uh, and nowhere it w was that clear in my mind that in his reaction to the pandemic crash, uh, the multiple rounds of stimulus, the focus on uh, reshoring manufacturing jobs, building factories. Uh, you'd mentioned earlier that labor is really an important part of, of left-wing populism, and Biden became the first president to march on a union picket line when he joined the UAW strike a few months ago. Um, so, you know, if you, if you could rock it back in time 25 years uh, and tell people that Joe Biden would be marching on a picket line uh, and embracing a billionaire's wealth tax, uh, as he did in last year's State of the Union address, I think it would blow people's minds. And I think it's a good measure uh, of how much the party has changed in left direction, based in large part uh, because of the pressure from folks like AOC, who you just played in that clip. They've, they've, they've won an internal argument or they're winning an internal argument inside the Democratic Party. So your focus in the book, which I'm sure was finished before October 7th, um, was economics and how that topic has divided the wings of the Democratic Party and the left-wing economic populists have risen up um, over the last 15 years to really influence somebody like Joe Biden. Of course, a big issue now dividing the Biden wing from the progressive wing is the war in Gaza. So... Here is Bernie Sanders, one of the three you focus on in the book, uh, recently supporting a bill that failed and that Biden did not support that would have put more human rights conditions regarding civilian casualties on the way Israel is fighting Hamas. So my view has been from the beginning, Israel has a right to respond to this horrific terrorist attack from Hamas. But you do not have a right to go to war against an entire people women and children. And the United States Congress has got to act because a lot of this destruction is being done with military weapons supplied by the United States of America. And what the resolution that I'm introducing is about, it's consistent with the Foreign Assistance Act. It says that if American military assistance is given to any country, Saudi Arabia, Israel, any other country, it has got to be used consistent with human rights, international human rights standards and American law. In my opinion, that is certainly not the case. Bernie Sanders on CNN State of the Union on January 14th. I guess the Sunday talk shows still matter a little bit. We had uh, AOC on Meet the Press <laughs> and Bernie there on CNN State of the Union. How do you see this issue? I don't know if it's in the book, but new as a big political force only since October, interacting with or redefining the more left versus more center wings of the Democratic Party. Yeah, well, this this happened after the book went to press, but but unquestionably, I think that, that Israel and Hamas is the new fissure um, inside the Democratic Party. I mean, you can see it everywhere you look. I think I think the po most recent polls I've seen show that uh, younger Democrats by like three or four to one support Palestinians uh, over Israelis. 
Uh, I was out in Iowa for the caucuses and then uh, for the Republican caucuses and then uh, New Hampshire for the primary and speaking to voters on the ground, young people in particular, a lot of a lot of de- young Democrats and progressives were out, some of them crossing over to support Nikki Haley. And I always ask her, what's your number one issue? Uh, and uh, Israel, I, I think by far was 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 the biggest issue for most of the people that I spoke to that were under the age of, say, 40, and, and, and quite a few who were older, too. Uh, so I think that this has become the new fissure in the Democratic Party. And the danger for for Joe Biden, you know, I write in the in the Rebels about how he sort of unified the party around a series of economic messages to such an extent that even even uh, characters like Sanders and AOC, uh, who don't really line up with Joe Biden's politics, have been really happy with, with what he's done economically and have decided not to challenge him in the 2024 Democratic primaries. Um, so while he sort of temporarily put out that fire, I think Israel is a new one. Um, the White House is really having a hard time grappling with what to do, how to message it, and how to not to lose these vital younger progressive voters uh, that Biden is going to need if he's going to win re-election in the fall. And since you also wrote that book about Steve Bannon and the populist right, I'm confused by the America first wing, including Trump, on foreign policy. Um, They run on no more foreign adventurism, costing U.S. blood and money that should be spent on Americans, that money. But then they also run on the U.S. needing to be, you know, the big behemoth force in the world. So, like, as it relates to the Middle East right now, we just had our first U.S. deaths since October 7th in the region. Um, The left is saying, we talked about this yesterday, it's a result of Biden supporting Netanyahu way too much. And that's why the Americans in Jordan became a target. But if the right is for saving American blood, except where there are real American interests, what, what do they argue about American interests in the region? Well, I think, you know, if you, if you talk to the right wing populists that I've written about, people like Steve Bannon, their argument is that America's focus needs to be on China. That's our big enemy. It's not Russia. It's not Ukraine. It's not in the Middle East. That ought to be the focus. Um, but I think if we're being honest, uh, uh, the real focus for a lot of these folks is being anti-Democrat, anti-Joe Biden, and making any argument they can to undermine Biden's standing in his presidency. Uh, and so this isn't necessarily uh, pure disagreements about policy. A lot of this is political sure. uh, and the criticisms that you hear coming but, from the but, right. But Nikki Haley is taking a fairly Biden-esque position or even more hawkish, just support Israel in destroying Hamas. Mm-hmm. You might think Bannon and Trump would be more conflicted. Uh, but all I see is Trump campaigning on, you know, if he was president October 7th, never would have happened, which is a dodge. It doesn't tell us anything about what the U.S. should do now, in his opinion. Yeah, that's right. And look, I mean, Trump isn't articulating a policy position. This is just the old Trump impulse about, you know, if you elect me, I can fix anything, whether it's the economy or foreign policy. Uh, Haley is interesting in that she's representative of the older Reaganite strain of Republicans who who really do have firm policy positions on foreign policy. uh, And, and, do support Israel over over Palestinians um, generally. And so there is a division there, but it's I, I think of it as being more division on the right than it is on the left, the division between sort of the Trump, Bannon, MAGA wing of the party uh, and the older neoconservative Nikki Haley wing. Let's get a couple of calls in here. David in Manhattan, you're on WNYC. Hi, David. Yes, thanks very much. I'd like to understand uh, your interpretation of the recent Gallup polls 
which show across the board an erosion of citizen trust in our institutions, including the media, but in terms of our elected officials, our appointed officials, the agencies, etc., and how that plays into your thesis about the rebels. That's a great question. Um, you know, I think the clearest uh, way we can see the erosion of trust in politicians and institutions is if you look at the economic numbers, sort of the condition of the country and, and what people's mood is like, and you look at Joe Biden's political standing. Uh, my day job is at Bloomberg, so I'm sort of inundated with financial data all day long. And if you look at the results of Joe Biden's response to the COVID crash, um, a response very much shaped by politicians like Warren, Bernie, and Ocasio-Cortez. It has been remarkably good uh, in the sense that, you know, we're, we have uh, uh, low, low gas prices, uh, record high stock market, record low unemployment, consumer sentiment has turned around, is now, is now shooting up. Uh, all the economic numbers say that that it's about to be morning in America again, as Reagan famously put it in 1984. Uh, and yet, if you look at Joe Biden's political standing, he is in the upper 30s. Uh, voters just are not connecting this improved these improved economic conditions with Joe Biden. And I think that's partly because voters have become so soured on all politicians. Uh, Donald Trump is is not much more popular than Joe Biden and when it comes to favorability ratings with all voters. Uh, I think that people have soured so much on politicians and institutions um, that they're just not willing to give credit. And so you 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 see this sort of permanent condition uh, of anger and dissatisfaction. And I think you layer on top of that things like uh, the war in the Middle East, the recent bout with inflation, uh, the fact that Donald Trump is now coming back for a long time, voters told pollsters they didn't think he would be back. But having uh, won the first two contests in the Republican primary, he's pretty clearly going to be the Republican nominee. I think all of those realizations combine uh, and just create a very grim mood about the public generally, which explains a lot of the negative numbers that we're seeing. Listen to rights in response to something I said earlier about government's response to the 08 financial crisis. Listen to rights. Brian, love your show, but don't simplify by saying only the banks got bailed out. What about GM and Chrysler? Government action was necessary to keep jobs and the financial system functioning. Watch your assumptions. And that's, you know, that's fair a great enough. Point. The yeah. homeowners did not get bailed out. But remember Obama's reelection slogan, one of them in 2012, um, General Motors is alive and Osama bin Laden is dead. Yeah, so. no, and that, that's a great point. I mean, the, the, the one real success in, in the 08 crisis response was uh, saving Detroit. You know, Mitt Romney, o Obama's opponent in that election, had famously written an op-ed titled Let Detroit Go Bankrupt. Uh, I don't think it's any accident that Barack Obama chose to run as an economic populist in 2011 and 2012 when he was running for re-election. And the fact that, that he had saved the auto industry and was able to put that front and center, and the fact that he was running against uh, a wealthy private equity baron in Mitt Romney, I think, helped uh, to highlight those themes and shape the election. But to my mind, it's yet another example of the power of economic populism as a political message. Uh, we see it on the left. We see it on the right with Trump. And I think in a lot of ways, the 2024 election is going to shape up as a battle between Trump's vision of right wing populism and Joe Biden's vision of a more left leaning populism. And we leave it there with Joshua Green, national correspondent for Bloomberg Businessweek. 
with his new book called The Rebels, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the Struggle for American Politics. Joshua, thank you so much for sharing it with our listeners. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.